No, go ahead, talk. <laughs> Say, you're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. No. Do it. No. Do it. <laughs> Say, you're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. The WordBros.com. What's up, everybody? This week on the pod, we talk to Charlie Stickney. He is the publisher, co publisher, excuse me of Scout Comics and the creator of the smash hit runaway Kickstarter sensation White Ash. Charlie's a good dude. We've been wanting to have Charlie on the podcast for quite some time. And today we fulfill that destiny of Charlie being on Word Bros. So lend us your ear and listen to our main man, Charlie Stickney, this week on Word Bros. Talking today to White Ash co-creator and editor-in-chief of Scout Comics, Charlie Stickney. Charlie, what does an editor-in-chief do anyway? Well, uh, I think technically the role is uh, co-publisher. Oh, okay, okay. Now, I don't, so that's I, even more I have more no vague. idea what, what an uh, <laughs> editor-in-chief does. Um, no, I, I think uh, they, they are all titles that say you have responsibility to try to make things run smoothly and integrate things together and grow the company. How's that uh, working out for you? Uh, some of it's working really well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, the, the, the growing the company aspect is, is going great. Uh, just, just in general, I mean, Scout has been, despite the, the epidemic, uh, pandemic it's it's been just growing month after month the web store sales are exploding the number of retails who retailers who know who scout is has been growing so I, th- I think on a brand level scout's been doing great um and uh you know and I, I think people are starting to understand who we are as a group of creators and the kind of books that we do amazing books like metal shark bro what come uh, on why uh, you don't have to grease this wheel charlie stickney we're here talking about you buddy yeah well, it's not about us well like at, at the end of the day you know when i talk about the brand of scout i think it's important to um bring in as many of the good titles that help that brand grow um so like that, that's that's the way i look at it well then maybe maybe not mention that one more <laughs> <laughs> Mention yeah. mention White Ashmore, uh, and, and, and uh, then people will be like, okay, I, I get it. It's like a modern day fantasy. Um, so, in your duties at Scout, can you describe what those what those duties entail? So people duty. understand. Yeah, duty. I said duty. <laughs> <laughs> what those what those what your uh, what your job uh, at at Scout entails? Well, so well, people understand it. it. It's cleaning up other people's duties. That, uh, they... <laughs> <laughs> that that they might leave lying around. Um, this is the best joke ever we've had on the show because I'm like internally thirteen. Um, well, I mean, like I have a a duty um, to try to 
make sure that uh, no, no, like in general, um, David and I, uh, David, who's the other co-publisher, we're, we're we're working to build the brand of both the creators and the company, um, and you know, on a, um, a micro level, you know, we're looking at each title, making sure it's as good as possible, um, providing one last set of eyes before they go to print. Um, on, on a larger level, we're trying to make sure that the different books integrate well with each other. So we don't have, you know, eight vampire titles coming out in 2021. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a look at, at both curating the line going forward to making sure we're having the right books, making sure they're coming out at the right time. Um, and then, then on top of that, one of the things that I personally am invested in is building the community that surrounds Scout um, to both grow, grow awareness among creators, but also among retailers and make everyone feel more comfortable about what we're doing so they realize the quality of the products that we have, the quality of the creators we have. Um, so so I, I focus a lot on um, the social media reach of the company and overseeing that, the marketing, um, and you know tying that into the titles that we're doing. So there's some synergy, so we're able to grow those. And also you know, being there for the retailers, expanding um, the, the retailer list, the mailing list, the press list, you know, all these things, because we're a small company, you know, you don't have just a dedicated press team. So, you know, between David and I, we split some of the duties overseeing these things to make sure they're happening and expanding the reach of all of them. Charlie, I got to tell you, man, you really sound like you know what you're talking about. It is impressive. You're an impressive young man. Uh, what a guy. It's just, wow, dude. Wow. Um, so tell well, us how it's, to... it's good because I was just going to say there's, um, there's a great week Wikipedia article and I'm just reading from that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, then, then you read aloud very well. Thank so, like, you. How did you get into comics? Like, um, you have a you have like a television film background. If 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 I'm uh, if I'm speaking correctly, yes. Yeah, I I am. Um, you know, like a lot of us, I have a lot of backgrounds. Um, I my original primary intent when I was going to college was to get into comics and uh, I was a dual major. Hey, job well done. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You did it. Uh, uh, it took me a lot longer than I thought it was, I was going to, but uh, I, I was a dual major in film and studio art. And um, while I was, while I was there, I interned down at Marvel uh, my junior year, the summer bef um, before my senior year. Um, so it was kind of like, do I go down, you know, do I move to New York City and become a comic book writer and anchor? Because that was something I was looking to do. Or um, do I move to LA and pursue the film industry? But I got a job offer in LA, so that's what sent me out here. Uh, and then I got to work in animation and low budget film and feature film uh, and some television. So, so, but all along, I really wanted to do comics. So as, as the film industry and the television industry started merging with the comic industry, making it its feeder system for, for good products because seemingly they, they couldn't uh, come up with their own ideas anymore. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a natural transition for me, um, especially with all the work I had done in animation too, to you know, finally sort of say, okay, we're at a time and place where it's, it's ripe for creators to make their own content um, you know, the, the, the bar in terms of printing and distribution has come down. So if, if you want to do it on your own, like you guys have done, like I've done on Kickstarter, you can reach a lot of people and build an audience. And so I said, you know, why don't I try that with one of these things 
that, that I'm creating and see if I can find some traction there. And that's how White Ash was born. Um, you know, it started out as a Kickstarter book and we, we started growing a rather large following. And uh, I ended up talking to James Hake at, at Scout and he was like, we'd love you know, for you to bring it to Scout. And I said, you know, it's, it seems like it's a good fit. Um, and, you know, the longer I was at Scout, the more things I was doing behind the scenes to, to help grow Scout, you know, selfishly to make the, the launch and the release of White Ash go better. And, it, it, you know, because of that, we realized that maybe, you know, James said to me, would you be interested in maybe doing something more formal besides, you know, because all the things that you're doing right now to help White Ash are helping the Scout line. And would you maybe be interested in just doing that formally for Scout? And that's kind of where the discussion started. Wow. How I ended up in this position. That's awesome. That's nice. And so tell us uh, about White Ash. That is kind of your baby. That is your book. You've been, you said you've been doing this thing independently on Kickstarter for a very long time. It is now a Scout title. And you, sir, have like this smash hit runaway success book on Kickstarter that you've been able to transition into the um, direct market. Tell us about White Ash. So, you know, the real quick pitch that I like to use is it's Romeo and Juliet meets Lord of the Rings in rural Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one I like That's to do one. is like, uh, imagine the guys from Supernatural, their car broke down and they got stuck in Riverdale. And there's, a, instead really, of, and there's a really sexy elf running around. <laughs> That's right. That's, I was going to say, but instead of battling demons from hell, they have to deal with the worst of Mordor. But, um, you know, it's, 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 um, I, I like genre mashing. Growing up, Ghostbusters was one of my favorite all-time films. Um, and originally, I did a lot of romantic comedy writing, but it was always romantic comedy with a twist. Um, you know, it was some kind of a genre take on the romantic comedy. So, so for me, like putting those things together is 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 where narrative storytelling becomes interesting. When you know you have the romance, but you also have some horror, and you have some comedy, and you have some fantasy. And can you put all those dis- different elements together without making a mess? And if you can do that, sometimes you can create something special. And I think it's just about finding the balance and the tone that can capture all of those together. And, and, and so for me, um, you know, White Ash at its core is about a, a young guy who comes from a small, tiny town who dreams there's got to be something more. And to do that, he feels like to, to obtain you know, that identity that's not the same. He doesn't want to be in the same line of work as his parents to, to, to be a coal miner, to be in the family business. He thinks he needs to leave to find, you know, that, that heritage. And I think a lot of us, we go through that when we're 18, 19, 20, trying to find an identity that's separate from our, our families. Um, but as we get a little bit older, we begin to realize that even when we form that, you know, unique identity, it's influenced by all the things that came before us. And, and so White Ash is kind of about that push and pull of identity. And, you know, in every character in the town trying to define themselves in, in that time between them, like 18 to 25, when you figure out who you are. But it's in the context of, you know, when you find out about your family, it's not just finding out that, you know, maybe you were adopted or maybe, you know, one of your parents uh, you know, was, was gay or something like that. It's really like there's this whole hidden fantasy world that's uh, taking place in the town of White Ash that, you know, adds another level of informing of who they really are. Now tell me, Charlie Stickney, what is your favorite rom-com? You said you were a rom-com fan. What's your favorite one? Uh, I would say Groundhog Day. Ah, oh, that's a good All one. right. 
right, that's a good one. There's a lot of Bill Murray happening in your favorite movies. There, there is a lot of Bill Murray that's happening in my favorite movies. There's also a period. I mean, I'd put, I, I can't call this a rom com, but like Back to the Future is right in that genre mixing of of great films that have happened. And I think like that that period in the mid to late 80s was kind of a golden age where the technology was catching up to the ideas and you had the classic filmmakers who'd been making films for a long time who were able to try something new. Um, and, and, and so there's some really great stuff that happened. Interesting. I've always said so, Back to the Future is pretty close to a perfect film. It, 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 if the script is not the perfect script, I don't know, you know what else would be uh, up there with it. I mean, Just um, ev- everything about it, like the casting, everything, like everything about Back to the Future is damn near perfect. Yes. Now, along the same lines, my, my question would be, what comics were propelling you towards a comics p- career? You were talking about movies and, and how you moved out to Hollywood through that, but then you were waiting for the, the comics genre, the comics game, the business of comics to catch up to um, where creator owned might might stand a, a a chance a float in the in the ocean that is comics. So, what comics were you reading back then that you feel like propelled you towards you know like I want to make a comic? Well, I was was definitely a Marvel fan um, in 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 the um, mid to late '80s, early '90s. That you know that's that's where all my money went. Uh, <laughs> I was I was not a music person. There was no money left over for music. Uh, I was not going out on dates at the time, so that Aww. was fine. Um, and, and, and honestly, it actually used to be a lot cheaper to get a lot of comics. You could find these subscription services that were 50% off of everything um, or 45% off. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I loved Peter David's run on The Incredible Hulk. That's one of my favorites. Um, I, and, like, if you look at where the Marvel tone went um, and that you see in the Marvel films, the Avengers to me you trace it back to his work because he was the first person who was blending that style of humor very effectively in the Marvel universe with the characters um, Spider-Man wanted to be it but it wasn't and, and, and sadly they, they tried to have Peter David on I think it was Spectacular Spider-Man but for whatever reason maybe he didn't mix with the editors but he didn't stay on for that long but I always thought he would have been the perfect person to write that book and his tone would have been perfect to that, um, at least in, in, in the mid 80s, late 80s. Um, and, and, and so I thought like at Marvel, it was the book that checked all the boxes of what I loved in a story. And it had just enough humor. So when something horrible happened, it really undercut that moment. Um, versus like the ongoing soap opera of the X-Men, which I also loved. But, <laughs> you know, like, like, like the, thing, the thing about the X-Men universe at, at, at that time was it was so well thought out because you had Chris Claremont who had been planning it for years. And because he had the job security to say, okay, this, this storyline is going to come to fruition, you know, a year and a half, 18 issues from now, he could do that. Um, so like, he, like, so I also love that kind of long distance um, story planning. Where, where you think, okay, this is going to pay off way down the road. So, like, I love that, but it was always so heavy. There was, there was never, you know, very rarely a moment of levity in the X-Men comics. Yes. Um, and, and, and so I think when you're sometimes, like, at, at the same tone, the same level, when something bad happens, it's just yet another bad thing happening. Whereas, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, it's like it's true. And then, then that, you know, it's the same formula that Joss Whedon used later on with Buffy and things like it that. Is, yeah. It felt like it was something light 
And then all of a sudden Buffy's mom died and it was a real gut punch because something impactful happened in the book. And so that's, that's the kind of things that I like to write where, you know, and you go back to TV, like Game of Thrones, why Game of Thrones worked so well in that first season is they showed you right off the bat, no one was safe. You didn't, you know, like when characters are dying, you didn't have that sense of security that you have watching most shows thinking, oh, the leads will be fine, but maybe it's a couple of the periphery characters that will die off. And, and so that adds a level of tension when you're watching something, which heightens your enjoyment. So, so I, I think like all those things, you know, be, um, so going back to your actual question, it was the Incredible Hulk. Um, I read a lot of X-Men and then Spider-Man was my favorite character, but he never had a great writer when I was reading uh, Marvel comics. Interesting. See, I think that's I, I think that is kind of a good case for Spider-Man because he is the best Marvel character. But there are times when you read Spider-Man where you're like, "This is just okay." Yeah, yeah. I think like he he was the evolution of comics, right? You know, the the, the first truly three dimensional comic book character that people could embrace, and then he was also the same age as a lot of people who were reading the comic and dealing with some of the same issues. And obviously it's been done to death since then, but when it came out, like if you go back and, I mean, I don't know how much Spider-Man you've read, but if you read the first 70 or 80 issues, like after about 20 issues in, it just gets so so fantastic. I mean, you're invested in the character and you just, you're rooting for him in a way that I don't think you root or identify with some of the other Marvel characters. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I, I, I loved, you know, seeing Todd McFarlane come onto Spider-Man and I loved reading all those issues. And they was like, I, I would pour over them for the art, but the story was not that engaging. I mean, that's, that's the sad thing about that Todd McFarlane run on Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, they introduced Venom, but you know, the story surrounding it, like he was a, he was successful because he was such an interesting looking character. Yeah. Not because he, you know, when he was first written, he was that interesting. Um, right. So. That's an interesting point. It's an interesting way to look at it because everyone kind of goes to X-Men. Like they have like, oh, what about this X-Men run? What about this? What about this? But with Spider-Man, you kind of just think like, what about like uh, um, Last Hunt, Craven's Last Hunt? And that's yeah. like, that's like the big story spider-man arc like that's the big one out of all the issues that he's had and all the stuff that he's done like that's the big one that everybody goes well if you're gonna read spider-man you gotta read that yeah and that was like 1990 yeah and, and the like, weird part is it's not even super indicative of the character because it's got a no. super dark tone mm-hmm. like like, like the, to, to me the um the more you know indicative stories of the tone are like the death of gwen stacy mm-hmm. um you know like all that green goblin stuff in in the in the seventies, like, you know, uh, some of the stuff with daredevil and Kingpin around that same time. The hobgoblin stuff. Hobgoblin, really good. Yeah. That's the yeah. hobgoblin run ones when I was reading. With, um, with, um, what's his name? Son, Wilson Fisk's son. Right. Right. The blood um, Rose or whatever his name is. Yeah. yeah the gang war. Yeah. That was also happening. That was yeah, it has that, I still have that Spider-Man with the, with the picture of the Rose on the yeah. cover. And I yes. still have that, that issue. And then I, I was reading like, and there was other things that happened during that where like a uh, Berm, like Berman was in it. And then mm-hmm. Spider-Man did something with Vermin. And there was like this, this little part that went with that where he had to team up with Cap. And then after that, they had like Spider-Man was rescuing the Cobra from his other supervillain, people because Cobra was willing to testify against them and um, he, Cobra the whole time was just trying to get away because 
Hyde was after him and Spider-Man had to fight Hyde. And Hyde was like, like basically Spider-Man was afraid to fight Hyde because Hyde was like a bigger class villain than he'd ever faced. So, right. Know, uh, that yeah, was Mr. spectacular Hyde. Spider-Man, right? Yeah. Yeah. Spectacular Spider-Man. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I would get whatever was on when I was a kid. I grew up in New York, and I would get whatever was on the spinner rack. So it didn't matter. It was amazing, spectacular. I was. I just wanted to read Spider-Man web, stories. Web of Spider-Man. Yeah, Web of Spider-Man was where they first premiered the the black costume on the wall with the web. spotlight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so like I, I I had all the Secret Wars books too because I wanted to see when they said I I, should, I think I think it was like Secret Wars number seven I believe where he was I had the black costume on it might be eight I might be wrong so don't don't quote me I, I'm just going off of memory here but I saw Spider Man in a black costume and I'm like I have to buy it like why what happened here like why does he get this costume like what's going on so it, it Spider Man is the impetus for a lot of comic book things so well I mean like and honest like um, I my gateway into comics was uh i i you know i was a big transformers fan like like a lot of us i think who watched watched the cartoon and uh my mom picked up a three pack for me on a vacation of transformers one two and three at bradley's uh i don't think it's around anymore i am familiar (laughs) with bradley's where are you from charlie uh i I grew up in uh maine and new hampshire okay um and uh, that that I think that Bradley's was out in Cape Cod. Bradley's. And yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, so like, I think it's a uh, Transformers number three. They do a crossover with Spider-Man. And wow, they're uh, out of ideas already at issue three where they're doing <laughs> crossovers. Like that's a, yeah. that's a bad and, spot. And, and, and it was like, like I, I got that and I was reading because of the Transformers and I saw, I was like, Oh yeah, Spider-Man. I used to love Spider-Man as amazing friends. And it was my gateway back into mainstream Marvel. There you through go. Transformers. And then, you know, a, a year later, I was no longer buying Transformers, but I was dropping probably $50 a month or whatever. You know, all my allowance and more was added up to. That's uh, a lot of, that's a lot of uh, lawns you had to mow, Charlie Stickney. Yes, I did. So you're doing the, the White Ash stuff. I know you're working on, are you working on a bunch of other books too, correct? Or are you just kind of focusing on the publisher role at Scout Comics? I can't imagine you have a lot of time to do both. Well, I mean, I, I think at least for me, the, the writing of a comic doesn't take anywhere as long as the drawing, the promoting and doing all the other aspects of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with White Ash, I'm, the story is pretty locked down for a lot of issues. So when I go to write an issue, I have a very strong outline for say, you know, the, you know, if, if Connor, are, who's the artist on the book was, was to get, you know, to start drawing, it would probably, you know, I probably have another six to eight issues worth of outlines. Dang. And I'm talking about like long issues, like in the 40 to 50 page range, which, you know, can then be chopped up into shorter issues. So if we're talking like 22 page issues, probably like 16 are already outlined. Wow, Charlie. Um, yeah, like the, the like, I have the series plotted out for about sixty issues, so I, I have a pretty clear idea of where it's all going. So um, you know, like I, I I plan my writing around when the artists are going to need something to draw, mm-hmm. um, and and then I say, okay, I need to take two weeks to go write the thing that will take them the next four months to draw. Um, so, so I have, you know, much more white ash that's coming out. I'm going to, I'm actually in the process of doing a white ash spinoff, which is a prequel series, um, that's set 3000 years ago in Elfheim, but also set in 1970s, New York. 
Okay. Um, oh, nice. And it cuts back and forth between these two stories where you eventually find over the course of the miniseries how these two are related and also how it ties into the greater White Ash universe. That sounds fun. Okay. Um, and so we'll pro- I imagine we'll see that on Kickstarter, yes, because you are like the be-all, end-all when it comes to Kickstarters. You're always giving people Kickstarter advice or people are always coming to you. You're like a, a, a wise prophet of Kickstarter. Well, Kickstarter has been really good to me. So I, I try to give back where I can to other creators because I think Kickstarter is all about if you have a following um, on Kickstarter, it becomes a lot easier. And the, the more invested you are in the Kickstarter community, again, it's also easier for you to be able to, to rally people to your cause or, you know, and as long as you keep making good things and you deliver, it becomes easier the longer you go. Um, which again is my long-winded way of saying yes. You'll see this on Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, you know, most likely sometime in November. Okay. Uh, oh, you know, that's, that's not it, far away. Yeah, uh, it depends on how fast the artist, uh, whether the artist completes the pages we need completed in time for the Kickstarter. Uh, with um, you know, I, I think it's important for anyone who's listening to, to this to understand the economics of comics and um, just how much income can be earned from the direct market. And I think a lot of creators think, oh, you know, I can make a fortune as long as my comic goes into comic book shops. Shit. Um, (laughs) Which isn't always the case. (laughs) Charlie, your answer was much better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so I, I think, you know, if you want as a creator to not go broke, and be able to work with people, work with good quality artists who are also not going to end up destitute trying to draw your book. You need to find as many revenue streams as possible. So, um, you know, Scout understands this and it's something I knew before I came to Scout. Um, So what I look to do is I look to have a slightly different version of the book that's on Kickstarter than what would actually end up in, you know, being distributed by Scout. So each market gets something unique um, and, and also you kind of look at it as like the early adopters pay a higher fee or if something, if you're looking at something on HBO versus being on Netflix, right? You know, like you're just paying a higher fee to get it a little bit earlier. Um, but again, there's plenty of new things that I will do for the scout version. So anyone who gets it there will get what they had before plus a little bit more. Now, how long do you plan like your Kickstarters when you go into, okay, you're going to launch, you said maybe in November based on how much work the art needs to kind of catch up. So where are you in the planning phase of that? Is this like a month, two months out? You're working on your page or working on your video? Or you you had it planned before you began. Like that's what he said. Like before you even, before you even said November, you already knew you were going to do it in November and it's already outlined out and you already know what your reward tiers are going to be. Like, how does that, how does that work for you? Well, I, I do a lot of pre-planning and then just adjust things. Um, like, like I would have liked to have been on a third white ash Kickstarter this year and the second Kickstarter for something else. Like I was originally hoping to do about five Kickstarters this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead I'm going to do two. Okay. Um, but that, you know, is partially due to COVID. It's partially due to artists taking longer, which is partially due to COVID again. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think all of our lives have been upended. Um, but specifically with this one, I have the reward tiers laid out. Um, and I, I'm just keeping things loose because if the pages don't come in, then I'll probably push it a little later. 
because I've been through the Kickstarter process a lot, it's not something I stress out about too much. Um, until you actually launch, then you start stressing out. Like that's when the that's when the thirty day roller coaster starts. Uh, <laughs> not not that no. I want to make you feel bad, but I I, I don't stress out about Kickstarter. Oh my god, I don't Damn, feel bad. Son, I don't feel bad, but but we do. We you need to teach it. a class. <laughs> um, well, it it's it's mostly because at at this point I have that audience that I know is going to come back, mm-hmm. um, and so I feel like the goals that I've set I can achieve. Um, and then it's just a question, like I always set a goal, which is under what it's going to cost me. And then it's a question of how much can I make over the goal? So I don't have to go too deep out of pocket to make the thing I'm trying to make. Okay. Um, and you know, like the the last one I was pretty, I mean, the last white ash Kickstarter, we had, uh, over a thousand backers. Jesus. So, but it's, it's something that's built upon itself Mm -hmm. and you know, they've each gone up. So. You know, like for this White Ash spinoff, if only half of those backers come back, that means I'm probably going to have 500 backers, right? Which is, Which is a still good, a good amount. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. It's, it's a great base to start from. Um, you know, that, you know, you'd think, okay, as a, if people hated it, I'd only get 500 and then I'm going to get a couple of new people. So, you know, not, not to say like I'm counting, you know, assuming that all these people will show up, but I think like if this Kickstarter does poorly, there'll be somewhere between five and 600 people. If it does, you know, around what I expected, it'll be between 800 and a thousand. And if it does really well, then it's take the white ash audience plus the audience for the adept, which I also worked on, which had over a thousand people. And so like, it could be over a thousand. It could be a lot of people. So going in with that makes you feel more confident about how it's going to end up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you a question. How much promotion and like, are there Kickstarter ads? Not, excuse me, not Kickstarter ads, but Facebook ads involved. Are there podcast uh, appearances? Are there, um, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for here? Are mailing lists, like what is your kind of marketing checklist that you have for your books and for Uh, your Kickstarters? It's very short. Um, so, so the, basically what I rely on is a couple of things. I, re, I rely on um, having a big launch based on people coming back to what I've done before mm-hmm. and using that big launch day as something that's going to spur the project forward. Um, and, and I think if you have a big launch day, then there's a natural momentum to the project, which is going to gather more people. Um, in terms of what I do once the campaign starts to, to generate more people, um, I really think there's only one significant place to put your energy and resources, and that is cross-promoting with other projects that are currently live on Kickstarter. Um, I think everything else, like if you combine Twitter and Facebook and podcasts and you know big articles written upon you, unless, you know, unless it's some insanely huge site, I don't really think it moves the needle that much. Um, I do a lot of um, targeted links, um, you know, like where you can track where the um, backers come from. Do you guys do that when you do your Kickstarters? Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. We do uh, that. At least for me personally, um, almost 95% of my traffic comes from either my backers from previous campaigns 
from Kickstarter internally or from the recommendations of other Kickstarter projects. Wow. Um, I get nothing from Facebook. I get maybe two or 3% from Twitter. Um, so like it's, it's all in, internal on the platform because at the end of the day, you know, if you're advertising outside of the Kickstarter ecosystem, you have to get someone who's interested in your project. You need to get them to come to Kickstarter and then you get them, you know, if they don't have an account, they have to sign up and then you need to get them to try to back your project and figure out, you know, the, the um, you know, everything versus if you're cross promoting, that person is speaking to someone else who is currently backing comic books on Kickstarter, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't get any more targeted than that kind of audience, which is why I feel personally like those, those recommendations work so well. And if the right person on Kickstarter tweets you out to their followers or puts you in their project update, like I've, I've seen as much as like a thousand dollars in a day come in from, you know, wow. from one of those updates. That's crazy. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so it seems like you are like the Kickstarter guru because we were getting ready to launch Ninja Nuns. You were pretty influential in some of the stuff that we were doing as well. Now, is that something that you kind of take on in your role as publisher at Scout when you see Scout projects getting ready to go up? Do you interject some of your, I guess, knowledge into it? I think it depends on you know if the creator is looking for any advice. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, like, I, I, I don't want to overstep. Oh, and, totally. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's based on my own experience. And it's it's going to be a little bit different for everybody's project. And there are certain, you know, like, you can see there are very different types of books that are on Kickstarter. Yes. Right? Like, there, there's the different, like, there's the sexy cover model for funding, <laughs> right? You know, like, like which which can make you a lot of money without even having something good beyond those sexy covers. Yes. Um, there's the anthology model. There's the um, you know hardcover model. So like there's different models, and each of them has their own different permutations. Um, if it's a creator who's going to be putting their book out through Scout, I do try to advise them in a way that both helps them, but also can preserve something, so that Scout will have something unique to publish as well. That makes sense. Um, but I also do a lot of advising um, for people I'm just friends with. Uh, David Pepos, who just did the OZ. Um, which was very successful on Kickstarter. Shit. Um, that thing like, was that, a smash. Was, Good God. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a friend of mine. So he peppered me with questions about, you know, ways to do Kickstarter, ways to generate an audience. So you know, that was, that was one where, you know, obviously the success is largely due to the book that he had, but that's not at Scout. That's just another creator who, um, you know, that I was friends with who was looking to do a Kickstarter and I wanted him to kill it as much as possible. Yeah. And boy, did he kill it. Yeah. No shit. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So, um, so you were just kind of the master of all here in the wide, wide world of comic books. And it's a pleasure to have you on. We're glad. So we're glad you're working uh, on our side, Charlie Stickney. Yes. <laughs> We've said that more than once. Oh, I, I like to say I'm glad that we have uh, Metal Shark Bro on our side. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, again, quality uh, promotes quality. And it's, 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 but it's, it's, it's true because I think the more quality books that we put out at Scout, the better you know, um, caliber of creators want to come make uh, titles with us. Yes, sir. It's the old adage, uh, rising tide raises all ships, you know. It, it, it does. It, it really does. Um, and it's easy to promote titles you like. Totally. You're exactly right about that. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like yeah. It's, it's, it's a little bit harder if something's not something, you know, like there's, there's 
there are books that maybe came on before you know I was helping. Oh, look at you dropping books. bombs on people. <laughs> right. you know, like, no, but I'd say that there's you know there are books that I like better than other books, like we all do. Um, but it's easy to promote a great book. Yes. You know, it's it's harder to promote a book that's not as great. Now tell us a little bit about that. How how involved are you in the pitching process? Like if a creator I was getting ready to ask the same question. If a creator sends a pitch to Scout Comics blind, like are you part of the team that takes a look at that and has a vote on if it goes through or not? And well and we were also asking that because if you think about what you just said, trying to pitch Metal Shark Pro to someone is is it can be a, a task at times because well, pitching it's, a, can it's be, a weird thing. And pitching can be thing. the most difficult part of comics as well, I right. think, because it's a completely different skill set. When you're writing a comic, you're kind of tapping into dialogue and creativity and, and visual mediums. But when you're writing a pitch document, that's strictly a sales thing. So it t- it's a different set of skills. So are you involved in that process, a Charlie Stickney? Yes, <laughs> I, I, I am now. Um, you know, I, I have been for a couple of months, uh, probably about f- three, four, five. I, I don't know exactly when. Uh, if you're listening to this and you were rejected by Scout, I probably came on after that. Um, <laughs> so so but, he doesn't want any more emails about it? That's, what that's right. But, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a board of six people uh, that determines which titles go forward and we're looking at a, a variety of things and i think just just to the point you were just saying about how it's a different skill set to write a pitch as it is to write a comic um one of the things that i'm trying to do now is to make sure we don't just have good pitches we have good comics mm-hmm. um, because there are certain things that come through and they have killer pitches and then the execution is not as killer right? <laughs> and, and you know for and there's a lot of reasons why you know that can be the case but you know they are two different skill sets: writing that pitch document and writing the comic. And also, on the other hand, where maybe the pitch isn't great, but the pages are amazing. Yeah. That you can see the gem that's there if you know if the person has a little bit of help to you know to work with them. So I, I am part of uh, the board that's now evaluating. We evaluate pitches for a lot of things. Um, I mean, it's it's the quality of you know the pitch itself. But it's also the, the creators. We want to have good creators that we're working with at, at Scout. Um, people who want to promote other creators because we're really trying to build, build a community here. Um, so, you know, we don't want people who are just about themselves. We, you know, we want people who want the other amazing titles that we have coming out. You know, and then we want people who are going to be retweeting that Frank on the Farm is coming out in October or, you know, things like that to say, hey, look at these great books that Scout's putting out because I'm happy I'm, pr- you know, I'm proud to be in the company that's also doing Yasmin. Yeah. Um, right. you know, like, so I, th- I think like, so, you, you know, you're looking at both the title, you're looking at, you know, it's viability in, in the direct market, but you're also looking at the relationship that you want to have with the creators. Maybe this book isn't the most commercial, but the creator is a genius and you want to establish a long-term relationship with them. Maybe they target a niche that is not being hit by any other book currently at Scout. So you, again, you have to look at, you know, I'm looking at it through the prism of the entire line of books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to do um, steel, you know, steel ray, um, you know, like the surfer steel ray, uh, who, you know, like, like some kind of metal shark bro spinoff 
like that's not from you guys right now, right? You know, like someone who, who saw that and, and you know was like, oh, I can write that. You're like, you like you need to make sure you're not cannibalizing. No, you can't, son. No, you can't. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> uh, uh, but but like, like you want you want to make sure you're protecting the brand of your own creators, um, you know. And I think that's really important that you you know when you're doing it, you're looking at a holistic approach to you know what what books you're saying yes to. And, you know, like there are, you know, I've seen a couple of books that are great comics, but they're just not a great fit for Scout and what we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool, man. Yeah. Well, well, Charlie, we are glad that you came on. You're doing a fantastic job with your comic career, with your publishing career now as well. With um, your where Kickstarter could, career? I mean, dude, he's got that Kickstarter shit on lock. I mean, come on, man. Charlie Stickney, you know Charlie Stick Deagle fun. Day one, baby. That's just how he does. Um, so, Charlie, where can we find you on social media? So the best place to find me is at Charles Stickney on Twitter. Um, someone else had Charlie Stickney and they would not fight me for it. Um, at least that's <laughs> what I try to tell people. Um, so uh, Charles Stickney on Twitter. That's again, I, I respond there. Uh, I am on Facebook, but I don't usually follow people back. I haven't met in person or had lots of virtual interactions with. Um, so you know, I try to, try, try to keep that a little bit more personal. No, I, I don't you. know why I any of us want to be there anyway, but um, it's like, th- those are the best people. There's a white ash comic on Instagram. There's a white ash.com. You can follow me on Kickstarter. A lot of people do. Uh, but yeah, but mostly on Twitter. Sounds good, Charlie. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday and Hey, Best of luck, even though you don't need it from us. You got that yeah. shit on lock. You're going you to get that Kickstarter money. <laughs> you going to get all of it, baby. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate it, but it's mostly because uh, I have great friends in the community like you guys. Oh, oh, stop it. Look at you, you old slide dog. Charlie Stickney, everybody. You're listening to the Word Bros Podcast, thewordbros.com.